Today's episode of Beyond the Mask is presented by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. Get a free consultation today to be guided through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Just visit crnafinancialplanning.com. Beyond the Mask is also sponsored by crnaeducation.com. CRNAs, you can get the CE credits you need by just going to crnaeducation.com. They have over 100 AANA prior approved credits, all four core CPC modules, and even over 40 pharmacology credits. No subscriptions, it's all online and mobile friendly. Just go to crnaeducation.com. And don't forget, listening to our podcast can earn you Class B credits. For more information on how you can submit them, check out our CE Credit tab on our website, beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us for another episode of Beyond the Mask with Jeremy and Sass, Clinical Edition. I'm Jeremy Heiner. And I'm Sass Elisha. And today we're going to be talking about a critical event, one that you're certainly going to want to listen to. And in terms of the outcome related to it, it could be potentially devastating. And today we're going to be talking about amniotic fluid embolism and the treatment. Yeah, so let's uh, let's buckle up, let's get ready, because what time is it? It is go, go time. time. We know CRNAs are busy with limited time. That's why we want to bring you clinical updates and reviews that are pertinent to your anesthesia practice. This is Beyond the Mask with Jeremy and Sass, Clinical Edition. Together, Jeremy and Sass have a combined 40 years of teaching anesthesia students and CRNAs. They speak nationally and at state associations and also continue to practice anesthesia in the operating room. Jeremy and Sass author and edit several anesthesia textbooks, including Nurse Anesthesia, the core anesthesia textbook used in the CRNA profession. Okay, so we're in a little bit gonna talk to you all about the AFE patho, risk factors, diagnostic criteria, and treatment, all the meat. However, we always like to, when we can, put in an example. And I know, Jeremy, you were telling me about an example of an AFE that occurred where you work. So can you tell me about it and tell our listeners about it? Yeah, yeah. So um, luckily, these do not occur very often. Um, but a colleague of mine, a friend who, uh, who's a CRNA, was taking care of a patient just a couple months ago who was in her second trimester. She was having a DNC done um, because the patient had had a fetal demise five weeks prior. Now, when the surgeons, when they were doing the amniotomy, unbeknownst to my friend who was uh, working there taking, doing the anesthesia, all of a sudden he saw tachycardia. And the heart rate, it shot up from 70 up to 120. He then noticed some pretty significant hypocapnia. He said the end title went down to 12 or 14. The waveform was looking weird. Uh, The patient was tachypneic and hypoxic. The SATs went down to 50s and 60s. And again, he didn't know that they had just performed the amniotomy. So he thought it was a PE. It had all the indications of, of, of a pulmonary embolus. So he called for some help and called a code blue. They put in an A-line, sent an ABG. It was acidotic. They got a TEE. They put that down and they witnessed right ventricular strain. They started giving medications. They gave a half an amp of calcium chloride. They gave some bicarb. They gave some albuterol. 
Uh, now, he had already given Zofran on Danzatron. And so they just added the Katorlak and the Atropine as part of the AOK therapy. And we'll talk about that later. Her blood pressures were initially unaffected, but she was hypoxic for about eight minutes. They gave her some TXA because then she started to bleed. And I found that really interesting that she went into DIC that quickly. They sent coags. The fibrinogen was low. It fell below 60. The troponins were up. And so the surgeons ended up putting in a balloon tamponade and they took her to the ICU. Now he checked on her two days after that. And against all the odds, she was improving. So that was kind of the happy ending there, but it was pretty stressful for him. And you know, Jeremy, you mentioned that right ventricular strain or, or right-sided heart issues. We're going to talk about that when we talk about patho. You know, one time, a very long time ago, I was actually an ICU nurse. And I was just fresh in the ICU. And remember, I had a preceptor. And my first case was a woman that had uh, what they had believed was an AFE. It was the saddest thing. She was 30 years old otherwise completely healthy, had a husband, a new new baby daughter in the nursery, mom, and over the course of about a month, this woman just died slowly. And it was one of the worst things that I had ever seen. So yeah, these are these are pretty lethal. Yeah. Uh, and for the most part, I know a lot of patients who suffer from AFEs, from amniotic fluid embolisms, they don't survive. Yeah. So an amniotic fluid embolus remains one of the most devastating conditions in obstetrics. It is the second leading cause of maternal mortality in the United States, which, as you said, this is a pretty rare event. So we can see in terms of the seriousness of it, unbelievably serious. The incidence of AFE is kind of like trying to estimate MH. No one exactly knows. But it's been estimated that it's 1 in 15,000 to 1 in 50,000 births. And perinatal mortality, really high, anywhere from about 9 to 44%. Attention all certified nurse anesthetists. Are you in need of a reliable and quality continuing education option? Well, look no further than crnaeducation.com. We are an NBCRNA-recognized provider, offering all four core CPC modules to meet your certification requirements. You can choose from more than 100 AANA prior-approved Class A CE credits with 43 articles covering a wide range of anesthesia topics. Need pharmacology CE credits? Well, we've got you covered there as well, with over 40 pharmacology CE credits available. All credits are completed online and are mobile-friendly. Choose articles worth one, two, or three credits. There's no subscriptions, no hidden fees, just the CE credits you need when you need them. Owned by CRNAs since 2011, you can trust in our commitment to your education. And customer service is always a quick email or phone call or even text away. To sign up and find out more about our education options, visit crnaeducation.com, your partner in continuing education. That's crnaeducation.com. All right, so Sass, you had mentioned earlier that we're going to go into some of the pathophysiology of this particular condition. So um, let's talk more about that. Can you tell us a little more about how the body reacts 
when an amniotic fluid embolism occurs? Yeah. So one of the biggest things or the initial thing is an inflammatory response. So there, as you know, there is, should be no communication with fetal tissue or amniotic fluid embolus between mom and baby. However, when amniotic fluid, which also compose, composes within it possibly fetal tissue, when it gets into maternal circulation and breaches this maternal fetal physiologic barrier, um, an amniotic fluid embolus can occur. And I had mentioned the inflammatory response. So it's an enormous activation of inflammatory mediators. And it's this is the classic SIRS uh, or systemic inflammatory response syndrome. So amniotic fluid and fetal tissue enter maternal circulation. And what happens is there's massive vasoconstriction, not only of the vasculature, but also of the pulmonary vessels. And we'll get into knowing mm-hmm. that. What do we have? We have, as a result, we have hypoxia, and you had mentioned very high-sided right heart pressures. Yeah, and that's exactly what uh, what my buddy saw in their case when they dropped the TEE. Exactly. The mediators, the majority of the the biggest mediators that are released, histamine, endothelin, and leukotrienes, and the activation of these substances leads to that incredible pulmonary hypertension. The pulmonary hypertension can result in acute right-sided heart failure and then eventually cardiovascular collapse. And then the other part that you talked about, which is amazing, like you said, all of a sudden, within not a lot of time, the patient developed DIC. And that's the third part of this when we talk about the AOK protocol. What happens is the presence of amniotic fluid activates the extrinsic coagulation pathway, and this causes a consumptive coagulopathy that then results in DIC. So it is a you know it starts out with the inflammatory response, but a it happens so rapidly. B it also affects the cardiovascular system and the coagulation system, and you can see without treatment, um, moms are going to have some pretty serious outcomes here. Right. Right. All right, so Jeremy, let's talk about who is most at risk for developing an amniotic fluid embolus. Yeah, I think it starts with uh, advanced maternal age. So women who are pregnant and, and uh, parturients who are above 35 years or older. So if they're older, that's a risk factor. Also, cesarean or operative deliveries. There's a higher incidence with those. Another risk factor are placental abnormalities, like placental abruption, and then preeclampsia and eclampsia are both identified as risk factors. All right, now, Sass, how about diagnosing an AFE? How can we do that? What are the clinical signs we can look for? Yeah, so there are no universal pathological or serial markers. It's done by omission or or confirmation of certain signs and symptoms. So this criteria is endorsed by the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine, and there are four of them. So sudden onset of cardiovascular collapse or hypotension with oxygen desaturation less than 90%. And that goes along with the story that you told, all of a sudden the end tidal CO2 fell out and she had hypotension. And the SAT dropped as well. There you go. Uh, The next criteria is documentation of overt DIC, 
prior to the onset of severe hemorrhage. Next, a clinical onset within 30 minutes of delivery of the placenta. And then lastly, the absence of fever during labor. And the diagnosis of right ventricular heart failure can be diagnosed either by looking at a TE if the patient is intubated and asleep or even TTE. Yeah, transthoracic. Right, exactly. Beyond the Mask is made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. With almost two decades of experience, the firm guides CRNAs through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Schedule a free consultation today by calling 855-304-3748 or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. All right, so signed, I mentioned signs and symptoms. Jeremy, what are some signs and symptoms? Yeah, so with any sign, any pathological or, or, or pathophysiologic condition, we're, we always look for trios if we can. There is one for AFE, and it consists of acute respiratory distress if the patient is awake. It uh, includes cardiovascular collapse and coagulopathy. Now, with the patient we talked about at the first of this episode, that patient was already intubated, so we didn't see they didn't see that initial acute respiratory distress, but they certainly saw the uh, cardiovascular collapse and coagulopathy as the case as the case moved on. Other signs and symptoms would include hypotension, and that goes along with cardiovascular collapse. But you you may also see some frothing at the mouth or some bubbling that comes up through the endotracheal tube. This would maybe be consistent of some pulmonary edema. If the baby's still in, fetal heart rate abnormalities, a loss of consciousness from the mother, bleeding, uterine atony, and even seizure-like activity could occur. Yeah. So let's talk about differentials. And, you know, in, your, in the case that you described, the CRNA thought the first thing is that she had a PE. So let's talk about differentials. A PE is possible. However, those are most common in the late postpartum t- delivery time. Anesthetic complications such as hypoxia can happen for a whole host of reasons. Was it the possibility, so she had cardiovascular collapse, uh, rapid onset. Could it be anaphylaxis? Also, unlikely, probably in someone who's younger, but could she have had an MI? And how would you rule that out? Such as with EKG changes, Mm -hmm. looking at troponins. Was it a cardiac dysrhythmia? Did she aspirate? Could that also look like this uh, picture, clinical picture? That that one certainly is a differential. Yeah. Was she receiving local anesthetic? Could it have been last? And then lastly, is she septic or is she developing sepsis? All right, this is good stuff. Now let's get to the heart of it because if we ever experience this, we want to know how to manage it. So let's talk about the treatment and management of a patient suffering from an amniotic fluid embolism. So Sass, take it away. What about treatment? What should we first do if we notice it? So the most important thing is really recognition and then treating it as quickly as you possibly can. And that's going to increase survivability for the mom. Initially, maternal treatment is primarily supportive. So we're going to be working on the blood pressure. We're going to be managing the airway. And if the baby hasn't been delivered, the obstetricians are going to need to be able to um, do surgery to get the baby delivered as fast as possible. After this, treatment is going to be focused on treating right-sided heart failure and also 
inhibiting DIC, but if it occurs, treating DIC. So in terms of the cardiac interventions, it's all about increasing cardiac output and also causing pulmonary vasodilation. Remember, that's what's causing our right-sided heart failure. Okay, SAS, so you mentioned providing some pulmonary vascular vasodilation and then supporting blood pressure. Is there recommended treatments or medications that are out there uh, for this particular condition? Yeah, so what has been recommended is dibutamine um, to increase cardiac output and then also inhaled nitric oxide to cause pulmonary vascular dilation. They also mention inhaled prostacycline, which can be given to assist with vasodilation and also inhibition of platelet activation. Okay, so those sound like great treatments to start with. We'll obviously want want to get our intensivists involved in this. Now, earlier you also mentioned that one of the uh, conditions that we're going to be worried about is DIC occurring. And certainly with my with my friend's story, that did happen. And so we're likely going to need to give a massive transfusion. So we're going to need red blood cells, platelets. We're going to need FFP, cryoprecipitate, send all the labs, get the coagulation tests going. And you may even consider a thromboelastography evaluation to see what kind of product you need to give. Okay, so we've got the management down, the overall general management, and we mentioned this earlier with the case. This is in the title of the episode, so how about how about the AOK treatment? What is this exactly, and why would we consider these three particular medications? Great questions. So AOK is just what it says. It's the first letter of three different drugs. It's atropine, one milligram, IV. Ondansetron, or Zofran, eight milligrams. And Ketorolac, or Toradol, 30 milligrams, IV. And just so you know, in terms of science, in terms of studies, there's not a lot out there that absolutely proves that this regimen is effective at decreasing uh, maternal mortality or that it's effective in treating it. Probably the reason is, A, it's very unlikely that an amniotic fluid embolus occurs, and B, in an emergency situation, um, it's going to be a difficult thing to get IRB to absolutely study this. So in terms of the science, is it hard and fast that the AOK treatment works? We don't know. However, there are many anecdotal reports and case studies suggesting that it does help in terms of the recovery for the patient. So what is the proposed mechanism for these three drugs? Atropine. First, atropine blocks vagal effects. So that is the reason for the atropine. Ondansetron or Zofran, as you know, is an anti-serotonin type drug. By blocking the effects of serotonin, Serotonin also helps to increase pulmonary vasoconstriction and platelet aggregation and degranulation of mast cells that are going to release histamine. So really trying to, by giving on Danzatron, decrease that inflammatory response. And then lastly, our last drug, Ketorolac or Toradol, has also an inflammatory inhibitory response but also inhibits specifically thromboxane to decrease that coagulation cascade. 
Now you say to yourself, okay, we're going to suggest Jeremy and I or others are going to suggest a regimen to you that hasn't been proven by science. And that's true. This one hasn't. But I say, why not? The more A, this is rare, but B, the mortality rate is so unbelievably high with this. And there are case studies that say it does help some very dramatically at reversing the effects rapidly, why wouldn't you give this? In terms of cost-benefit, the benefits here, in my mind, dramatically outweigh the potential costs. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. So just to summarize, atropine blocks the vagal effects on danzatron, blocks serotonin effects that lead to pulmonary vasoconstriction and platelet activation and degranulation, and ketorolac blocks thromboxane, which is is important in the coagulation cascade activation. So there you have it, everyone. A-OK for AFE. We want to thank you for hanging out with us during this episode, spending some time with us. We really enjoy doing these podcast episodes for you. That is it, CRNA Nation. Remember, keep ventilating, and we'll catch you on the next episode. Hey, CRNAs, it's time to simplify your continuing education. Welcome to CRNAeducation.com, your trusted provider for CPC core modules and a plethora of Class A CE credits. You can explore 43 detailed articles covering various anesthesia topics, all from your favorite device, anytime, anywhere. And with over 40 pharmacology CE credits, meet your state board requirements effortlessly. Whether you need a few credits or everything to recertify, we have what you need. Just complete your credits online without any subscriptions or recurring charges. You can trust in our 100% CRNA-owned platform, established in 2011, ensuring you receive the best in customer service and educational content. Ready to learn? Go to crnaeducation.com, making continuing education easy and accessible. And don't forget that support is always a quick email or a text or phone call away. To sign up and learn more, just go to crnaeducation.com. Today's show is brought to you by the folks at CRNA Financial Planning, an independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families. From planning for a child's future college expenses to building a predictable income stream in retirement, the firm is committed to offering you comprehensive financial services customized to fit your unique needs and objectives. If you have questions about your financial future, get them answered. Call the team at 855 855- 304-3748. That's 855-304-3748. Or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Hi, this is Jackie Rolls, President of the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists and President and Founder of Our Hearts, Your Hands, a global anesthesia support community that takes donations to allow nurse anesthetists in low and middle income countries to go to educational programs, buy equipment or textbooks. Your donations are tax deductible and we would appreciate your support.
Be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere you like to listen to shows. Also, be sure to check out beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Each episode is posted there with a corresponding blog post, and we timestamp important parts of the episode to help you quickly get to the content you're looking for. Also, check out the special series section on the site. You can follow along and catch up on the CRNA History Series, episodes specifically about political conversations in the industry, or try the CRNA Personal Finance Series. It's all on beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And if you have a question for the show or want to be a guest or even suggest a particular topic, fill out the contact form on the site or send an email directly to us at info at beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And lastly, let's take the conversation social. Check out our Beyond the Mask podcast Facebook page and Facebook group. Jeremy and Sass expressly disclaim any liability in connection with the use of this presentation or its contents by any third party.